Morning, Senator Mauro. It's good to be with you. Uh, let me give some quick uh, kind of introductory remarks before I dive in and pray for us. Uh, the first is this, actually, since uh, Jay mentioned about church planting, I would love to see Seven Mile Road and more uh, churches just like Seven Mile Road churches uh, be planted all throughout the Philadelphia area. It's, it's great to see, uh, not only from afar, but also to hear from the brothers here, uh, how God is using this church uh, to continue to expand the kingdom, to proclaim the gospel. Uh, I've loved Seven Mile Road from afar. I've loved your pastors in particular. They indeed have been an encouragement. Pastor Jay in particular has been a great friend. Uh, he graduated from the same school for me, uh, and so we have that resonance, but I think the bigger resonance is really the fact is that we love to see, again, the gospel go forth and how Jesus is doing that. Uh, the other thing is this. I live in Upper Dublin. I'm on the school board, and so there's kind of some cross-connected mission. I will say this. In Upper Dublin, it's fascinating not only with the superintendent, but also some folks at North Hills Community Center. They speak, and they'll come up to me, and they know I'm a pastor, so they'll say, hey, Robert, do you know the folks at Seven Mile Road Church? And I'll be like, yeah, I know those guys. And they're like, they're awesome. They're doing some great stuff within our community. So I just want to commend you as a church as you continue to go out on mission um, that really, in essence, right, the stories are being told, not just of Seven Mile Road, but the stories of how God is using you to, again, shine the light of the gospel in that particular way. The last thing I just wanted to share is this. Uh, so a couple years ago, my family went on sabbatical, and I've visited a different church every week for the past seven months. It's been fascinating. I'm the perpetual visitor. Uh, but my family and I, when we were on sabbatical, we went to all these different churches. And I talked to my kids after each one. They're like, oh, you know, we were there, but we didn't really quite feel that at home, et cetera, and things like that. The only church in my one sabbatical that we visited all these different churches, we came last here to Seven Mile Road Church, and all my kids said, you know what? This feels like home. It was a great place for them to just do. So I want to commend you again as a church that I think even in that moment, it felt like there was a sense of resonance, but there was more of a sense of just saying like the love of Christ is present. Um, so as we lean into that, let's believe kind of how that works, especially in terms of this passage. Uh, I'm going to ask us to pray, and the reason I'm going to ask us to pray is this. In this passage, what we're going to see is there's a divine appointment. That in this divine appointment with Jesus, as this woman encounters Jesus, her life is changed. And I would argue that really the region was changed because of it. Um, so would you pray that for yourself, that you would have a divine encounter today? Uh, would you pray that as a church, as we hear these words, it would not be the words of man, but it would be as if God himself were speaking and encountering you this day. Um, so let's bow our heads in prayer. I will pray for us, and then we'll dive into this text for today. Heavenly Father, I do pray that. Thank you so much for Seven Mile Road. Thank you, Father, for the leadership, for the pastors, how they cared for this church, and Lord, how you're flourishing this church, not for their glory, but Lord Jesus, it's you, it's your kingdom that you, Father, would continue to expand as a result, Father, of this church being faithful unto you, that it would be a gospel outpost. Father, we pray now that your spirit would descend in this room in ways, Lord, that we would sense, Lord, an appointment that you have for all of us here. So, Father, whether we're the believer who's been in church for so many times, that we would be strengthened in our understanding of the gospel. And, Lord, even if we came here on a whim, like the guy at first service who said he struggled to even get up this morning and he walked over, that, Lord, you would meet us and you would encounter us. And, Lord, in that encounter, Lord, because it's you, Jesus, that our lives would be transformed. So bless now the preaching of your word. May you be with me as a mere servant, Lord, that would be not my words but yours. And as it goes forth, that it would bear much fruit for the sake of your glory and for your kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to begin with this question, which the question is this, is when was the last time you were seen? I'm not talking about the sense of when you come in every single Sunday and perhaps you see a notch and you're like, hey, John, hey, Mike, whatever, et cetera, and things like that. But when was the last time you would say that you were felt like you really were seen? Like someone actually said, you know what, I see you, but I know what you're going through. 
Believe it or not, we live in a day and age where I think, especially when it comes down to church, when, you know, this idea of when churches get bigger, and so it's interesting, Seven Mile Road's coming up on 10 years, we get to that point where maybe perhaps when you were beginning the church, you're like, okay, we were small, we were intimate, but as the Lord has blessed you and grown you, right, and this is, comes to this idea of as mega churches get out there, right, we think we get bigger, but the problem is sometimes what we lose is that very essence of, but we know each other. We really know what's going on in the lives of one another here within this room. So oftentimes, for example, people want to get to churches that are bigger. Because why? Because they want that sense of anonymity. They don't want to be seen. They don't want to say, okay, here's what I'm really struggling with. Here's my brokenness. Here's my sins. Here are the things that are really kind of wrecking my heart. And I really don't want any of you to know that. In fact, if you think about it, the advent of social media has really kind of played into that. Well, what is social media, right? Social media is this idea that we think we're known more, we get seen more. But just to be truthful and to be honest, we're really not. Right? We can kind of put our best selves out there. So, for example, like if you like taking selfies of yourself, right, what kind of picture are you going to put out there? You're not going to put that picture of you waking up in the morning with no makeup on and you look kind of like, uh, right? You're going to put that best picture and say, well, here, this is what I want everyone to know about me. See me for who I am, is what you would think. Or perhaps, again, if you're one of those food people, you're not going to put like, you know, a bowl of cereal. You're going to put that restaurant or that food that's exquisite. And that's what you want people to see and to know about you. And yet, here's what we know about the advent of social media. As much as we think we're seen, the reality of what it's producing is more anxiety, more nervousness, and actually more separation. That even though we think we're more connected, we're actually further apart than we'd ever imagined. And herein, in John 4, what we find is there's a woman who does not want to be seen, and yet has this divine encounter with Jesus that when she's seen, her life is transformed. And I would argue this for church, that we would understand this today, is that when was the last time, perhaps again, you were seen not only at church, but all the more important, when was the last time you've ever come before our living God and said, God, you see me? We can articulate in this phrase that we would be fully known and fully loved. And I've been wrestling through that a lot because I think inherent to that idea to say that we are fully known and fully loved becomes really important for us to be able to say, you know what, we, we long for that. My family, right, so I'm a father of three. I have a 17-year-old, 13-year-old, 11-year-old. My 17-year-old is my EGR. He requires extra grace, right? For those of you who have parents who are teenagers, it is a struggle. You can pray for me in particular as he's a senior in high school. But all that to say is this. In my interactions with him, here's what I think he longs for. He wants to come to me as a father and say, Dad, do you really know me? We have this conversation often. Dad, do you hear me? Do you know me? And the second thing that he's pleading for is what? After you know me, do you still love me? And here's the thing. If we do that on a human level in terms of our interactions, how much more so when we think about the divine God, our God that we worship, that we would say that in the gospel we are fully known and fully loved. Tim Keller in his book, The Meaning of Marriage, and he's talking about marriage, but I want you to understand, especially in light of the passage, reads it and says it this way. He says, to be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved, it is well, a lot like being loved by God, is what we need more than anything else. It liberates us from pretense, humbles us out of our self-righteousness, and fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw at us. 
So let me parse this out a little bit for us, right? So to be able to say that we are known but not loved is to be able to say this, right? Or actually, I'm going to go loved and not known first, right? So if I say to you as a guest preacher today, I, Robert Kim, love you all, which I do in a general sense, right? I love the body of Christ. But here's the reality, right? I don't know you. Your pastors who walk alongside and shepherd you, they know you and they love you. But see, the thing is, like, to me, to be able to say, I love you, but I don't know you, that's like superficial. It's only surface level. And sometimes I think maybe perhaps when we think about the gospel for us, we think, oh, yeah, Jesus loves us. But does he really know us? Does he really know who I am? Now, to go to the opposite level, to say that we are known, meaning that he knows the deeper recesses of who we are, the deepest struggles, our greatest joys, every facet of who we are, that if he knows you and he doesn't love you, that's the ultimate form of rejection. It almost becomes unbearable. And yet we would say this, the gospel says in Jesus Christ is that he fully knows you and he fully loves you. And if I could argue and at least encourage the people who are married in this room, that your marriage ought to embody that as well. That inherent to the function of the covenant of marriage is that we know our spouses. We pursue them in that knowing of them. And yet we love them as well. So as we dive into the passage of John 4, what I want to draw attention to is this, is what we're going to see is a sign or a significance, right? And so I use the phrase significance, right? So the question is this, when you look at a sign, well, what does a sign really do? Well, a sign points to a greater reality. And so you're going to see a sign just like any other sign. And the sign says, look at what the greater reality, see what it points to. Right? And so I'm going to kind of share two stories and kind of have you understand kind of what it means to look at a well, a sign, and say that there is a greater reality to what the well itself says. And so the two stories are this. I, have, I came from Huntington Beach, California, and so oftentimes we have visitors come from California to visit me. So this one time I had these two young couple, this one young couple that were old, my, my, my two old youth group students. They said, hey, Robert, we really want to go visit Westminster Theological Seminary. I was like, all right, we could have gone Liberty Bell, any other thing, right? But they're like, let's go to Westminster Theological Seminary. So I have this picture of them where, as tourists, there's a picture of them in front of a sign. If you know where Westminster Theological Seminary is, it's this tiny little campus in Glenside, PA. It's really not, like, exquisite. It's like a small campus, nothing really to be clamorous about. And so there are these tourists, and we take this picture, right? And they're right in front of the things. And you would ask yourself, well, why would these tourists want to take a picture in front of this sign? It's really not that significant. Contrast Westman to, to uh, Gordon Conwell. Gordon Conwell used to sit on the governor's mansion. Westman's like this tiny little dot on top of a hill. Really nothing there. And the answer is this. Why are they so, why are they so attracted? Because they heard, as youth students, right, from all their pastors, Westminster Theological Seminary is this great place in which all this theology and all this doctrine was taught. And I was like, whatever, bro. You want to take a picture? Let's take the picture. But the point being is it pointed to a greater reality. Now, again, that illustration might not fly here because all of us don't know schools, et cetera. But how about this as another illustration? So for those of you who are parents in this room, and I did this once, and I don't recommend it. Let's say here you say, hey, you know what, kids? Let's go take a trip to Walt Disney World. Let's pack the car, get in the car, and make that long drive down there, right? And so you go down there, and you get to the parking lot. And outside the parking lot, there's this huge sign that says Walt Disney World. And you say to your kids, all right, kids, we arrived. We're here in Orlando. See the sign? Great. Let's turn back and go home, right? All the kids are like, no, right? Why? Because the sign is not what's important. The sign says inside those walls, right, are hours of fun and adventure, and it awaits for you. 
And so the point that I want to get at is that when you look at a sign, see to the greater reality of what it points to. And again, I think sometimes when we look at John 4, we pass this understanding that there's a well. And the well is a sign that says, look to the greater reality. The other background I want to give is this. The Bible says here in John chapter 4 is that Jesus is, is traveling from Judea to Galilee. What's fascinating about that is you would think, yeah, he's just going to take that journey. But it says in John uh, chapter 4, verse 4 in particular, it says that he had to go to Samaria. Well, that's not actually truthful because here's the thing, right? Jesus is taking a trip in particular. He's plotting a path that most Jews would not take. In fact, when Jews went from Judea to Galilee, they actually avoided Samaria because why? Samaria was a place that was full of half-breeds, right? Mutts, whatever word you want to use that weren't viewed upon. They, had a different, they worshiped on a different mountain. They worshiped different parts of scripture, et cetera, and things like that, and they were often looked upon. When the Jews asked for them for help, they refused. And later in time, at some point in history, the Jews, in fact, attacked Samaria as well. And so there was this racial animosity and tension. So imagine for a second, from here, from Seven Mile Road Church, if you wanted to take a journey all the way out to King of Prussia Mall, now, the easiest way to get there is you just say, hop on the turnpike, go through, right, Upper Dublin, where I reside, where oftentimes these elitists live. But let's say, for example, you say, you know what? We want to avoid Upper Dublin. Those guys are too snobby. So in order to do so, when typically people would make that journey, they would go all the way up to Allentown, go all the way down to King of Prussia, just to avoid the Upper Dublinites. This is how the Jews would travel. And yet here in the passage, the Bible says that Jesus has to go through Samaria. Why? Because there is a divine appointment that he has with a woman midday at a well. And it's in that encounter, just like I would argue that every Sunday can be this for the church, that when we encounter Jesus, that our lives are transformed because of his grace, because of the gospel for us. In church today, I want to encourage you to see the gospel through that lens as we look at this well. So today, the sermon is entitled, The God Who Sees. And what is he sees? And again, it's this well. And again, what we, I could argue is this. What are the three principles of real estate? It's location, location, location. We could say this. What are the three things we're going to see? We're going to look at a well, but we could say it's a well, it's a well, it's a well. We could say well, well, well. But the thing is this. It's like a diamond, right? And the thing is, the beauty of the gospel is this. When you look at it, and I would argue this for our life, the more you look into Jesus, the realize, what you begin to realize is he becomes more beautiful. The more you gaze at it, you see all the different facets and dimensions. And you're like, man, this becomes amazing. What I want you to see today in the passage is this. We're going to see three aspects of a well. And every one of them speaks a gospel over to our, our gospel message to us. And as you receive it, you would say, just like within this divine encounter, you say, man, I get floored by understanding the gospel that much more. So the three things are this. A, gospel, a God who sees our need, he sees our social needs, he sees our spiritual needs, for those of you who like to take notes, our spiritual needs, and lastly, he sees our need for love. And I could argue, I've used the phrase betrothal. Betrothal simply means our need to be wed or to be husband, to be covenanted with in that particular way. So let me dive in with each one of you. The first things we see is this. A God who sees our social needs. And what do I mean by that? Here in this passage, the spiritual, racial, and social tensions between the Jews and the Samaritans are on display. Jesus comes to this well at midday, and he goes up to this woman, and again, it's Jesus who approaches this woman, and that becomes critical for a lot of reasons, but all that to say is this. He approaches this woman and says, woman, give me a drink. And as you look at your Bible, see the response of the woman. What does she say? She's like, how do you, a Jew, a man, 
ask me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink. And think in particular, when you go and ask someone for a drink, who are you typically going to ask? You're not going to ask a stranger. But Jesus approaches this woman like, how? A friend. And what you need to see here, what Jesus is doing is Jesus is actually breaking down every wall of hostility between that was created in particular in Jesus' time. Think about it. It's race. The Jews and Samaritans absolutely hated each other. Jesus is coming and breaking down the racial divide and simply saying, women, would you give me a drink? Think about it in terms of even the gender thing, which is on display here, right? Men and women in Jesus' time did not interact in particular in this thing. This would have been taboo, even as Jesus' readers would have heard this. They'd be like, what? A man asking a woman for a drink in particular at that time? The answer is no, that doesn't happen. And you see, one of the things I often tell church planters these days is this. I said the smell test for a church or the litmus test for a church when people come in used to be perhaps denominationalism, right? But it's no longer that. Maybe perhaps, again, why you came to Seven Mile Road Church is for these very reasons. People are coming, and they're saying, they want to say, well, let me do the race test. Does this church really embody this idea that the church on the Sunday 11 o'clock hour is no longer the, the most segregated hour in all of America? Does this church really practice what it preaches in regards to saying that the kingdom of God has every tribe, nation, and tongue under it, and I want to see a church that embodies that as well? Here on display is Jesus saying, look, I'm going to break down every single wall of hostility between every aspect of that. Think about when it comes down to even the understanding of gender, that here is this woman who feels like she's an outcast. She doesn't have a place. She doesn't belong. And Jesus approaches her and, comforts him and approaches her and says, Sir, woman, would you give me a drink? And you, think what, you see what Jesus is doing is he's basically settling every score. So I'm going to draw from an illustration from my childhood, right? And it's actually the significance of a well. And so if you have your Bibles, you don't have to turn there. I'm going to give you references. But in Genesis 21, 24, and 26, you'll see that a well was used to settle scores in the Old Testament. And why does that become important? Because here's what we see going on. What Jesus is doing is he's breaking down everything. He's settling the score. So when I was a kid in elementary school, we have some kids here, right? Every once in a while, we would have these tips on the playground. Right? And it was fascinating because the tiff oftentimes was something as simple as, we, I used to play dodgeball, right? It was something as simple as throwing a dodgeball too hard at someone, okay? And so a guy would come up to me like, Rob, you threw that ball too hard, B. I was like, all right. And he'd be like, Lake Park, 3 o'clock after school. I was like, all right, <laughs> whatever, right? So here's the thing. This is how we used to do it when I was in elementary school. And again, I don't endorse this for the kids in this room. Here we go, right? So at 3 o'clock after school, if that happened on the playground, we would go at Lake Park. We would get in a big circle. The two people that had the issue would be pushed in, and it would be either one of two things. It would be like a shouting match, like, hey, blah, 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 or sometimes it would be like the Russell and Tussle. We'd fight out, duke it out, whatever it is. But here's the fascinating thing, right? After Lake Park, the next day, everything was fine. We were friends again. We could go on the playground, and everything was good. Because at Lake Park, the score was settled. What you see here in this passage, what Jesus is doing is saying this, right? Everything we think about in terms of enmity or distance, et cetera, in regards to how we come before God, Jesus is saying, I have settled the score. We no longer walk in condemnation. The confession of the sins that we had today, that we're able to say, you know what? Nothing separates us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And church, if I can encourage you with that, one, do you do that in regards to your relationship with Jesus? To realize again that the score has been so that you walk freely in that grace. 
And two, as you think in particular about race and gender and everything else in terms of social divides of today in our culture and time, if, we, if God has done that for us, how much more so for we as a church ought to we walk in the confidence to believe again that every wall of hostility between man and man, man to woman, can be broken down by the power of Jesus Christ, by the gospel of Jesus Christ, the very thing that Jesus is doing here. Church, walk in the understanding that Jesus sees our greatest needs, in particular in our social, and he has broken those down that we might receive grace. The second thing we see here is this, is that Jesus sees our greatest spiritual need. The next thing we see here is the woman's sinfulness. Jesus comes at midday, and he goes up to this woman, and he says, woman, would you give me a drink? They have this interaction, and he says, well, go call your husband. And what is Jesus revealing in the midst of that time? He reveals every unth- everything unfaithful about her. She's like, I don't have a husband. Well, you're right, woman. You don't have one husband. In fact, you have had five husbands. And the man you're with right now is currently not your husband. And she gets amazed because she's like, man, you, I'm going to use the phrase here, you see me. You're a prophet. You know me. What does he know about her? He knows this about her, that this woman has filled his life with men, with, with men, and not just women, but men after men after men, that she's pursuing these things to be able to say, you know what, it's like she went from one place to the next to the next, as though somehow to say, you know what, give me dignity, give me value, give me worth, give me my purpose in life. And here's the thing, it leaves her thirsty. It doesn't satisfy. And God is peering into her heart by saying, you know what, I see your deepest need. Your deepest need is the fact of this, is that you've gone from man to man trying to find what none none of them will be able to provide and what I alone can provide. G.K. Chesterton has this quote that's at least trivial to me. He says this, every man knocking at the door of a brothel is in fact looking for God. I'm going to say that again. Every man knocking at the door of a brothel is in fact looking for God. You see, what this woman was doing is, it's her pursuit of idolatry. She's gone from man to man to man, trying to find worth, trying to find significance, trying to find dignity. Isn't that the pursuit of our own sinfulness? Is that we pursue after these things that we think will satisfy? When we were a kid, perhaps, again, it was the grades or it was the friends. As we get older, perhaps they get substituted for, again, income, houses, accolades, whatever it might be. That we do the examination within our, heart, our own heart to be able to say, don't look at this woman by saying, it's her, she's doing all these things. But is this not a reflection of all of us? That we're just like this woman? That we pursue the idols of our own heart as well? Keller says these are kind of the metal, 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 metal idols of, of our world and time. that have always been contemporaneous, comfort, approval, power, and control. That even still today, we long after these things. And you see what Jesus is doing here is he's exposing that. He's saying, I'm seeing deep within what you're pursuing. And these idols will not satisfy. They will leave you thirsty. I will draw attention to this as well. Think about this, right? This woman is coming midday at noon. Now, again, I grew up from California. We didn't have hot weather. In Jesus' time in particular, where this is being found in the area of Samaria, right, commentators have suggest, suggested that the weather would have been 100 and 110 with a lot of humidity, kind of like our summer days in here in Philadelphia. So imagine for a second, right? Like, when would you go draw water? You don't go and draw water at noon. You either go in the, in the morning or you go in the evening, the coolest times of the day. So why is this woman going at noon? She's going at noon because why? Because she does not want to be seen. 
And yet, in this divine appointment, Jesus said he had to go through Samaria. He had to be at noon at this well when this woman was coming to draw the water. And what does he do? He diagnoses and he sees deep within. I see your deepest spiritual need. You've been longing and pursuing after all these different things, and none of them will satisfy. But here's what I will offer you. I will offer you living water. And what is he offering? He's offering himself. He's saying Jesus is greater than all the pursuits that our life perhaps might have. We see this even in the passage, right? If you have your Bibles again, you can turn there. You don't have to. Genesis 16, the story of Sarah and Hagar, the well is the significance. Because why? When Sarah was running away, the Bible says in Genesis 16, 13, so she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her at a well. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly, I have seen him who looks after me. And here, church, let me encourage you. Have you ever had the Lord peer deeply with into the recesses of your soul? Kind of like a Psalm 139 moment. Search me, O God, and know my heart. See if there's any offensive way within me and lead me in the way everlasting. To have God peer deeply into your heart and say, you know what, God, here I am. I'm as broken as this woman. You know me, and yet you love me as well. The last point I'm going to give is this. A God who sees our need to be loved. And again, I think husbanding is on display here, right? Here's a woman who's had five husbands. This is the interaction with Jesus. And what would you argue, right? You would argue and say, well, this woman's just wanting to be loved. She wants to find the perfect husband. She wants to be loved absolutely and unconditionally. And here's the thing, right? What we see here in this passage, believe it or not, is another sign that says of our need to be longed within the understanding of the covenant of marriage, to be wed. I'm going to give you two passages. I'm going to give you three passages, actually, but follow with me in each one of these. Right? Genesis 29 actually says this, right? That we see that wells were used in Jesus' time as places, believe it or not, where men would seek brides. For example, in Genesis 29, this is where Jacob seeks out Rachel as a bride. Now, I know it doesn't make sense, but follow with me. It's like Jesus' e-harmony of his day, right? It's like, wow, that's where people are going to find a bride? You're like, yeah, herein, right, it's a well, and Jesus is pursuing for himself a bride. Now, I'm going to have you follow with me. Ephesians 5 says what? That the church is the bride of Jesus, that Christ is the husband. In the story of Hosea and Gomer, we see an Old Testament prophet who's tasked to say, go find for yourself a wife. Who is this wife? Find for yourself, Gomer. She's not going to be faithful unto you. And yet the whole charge, if you read the entire book, is an illustration of Christ in the church. But all that's to say is this, is that the woman will consistently be unfaithful. And Hosea is called to steadfast faithfulness, to be loyal, to, to up, be upright, to continue to, again, be a faithful husband unto her. And what do we see in this passage what you see in this passage is of all the things that you might be able to get is this, is that God sees our deepest need to be loved and to be loved unconditionally, and he pursues for himself a spouse, a wife. And who is she? She's a faithless adulterer, going from husband to husband. She's, he's pursuing for himself whom? Sinners. If you haven't heard the phrase, the phrase simply says this, that the church is not a museum of saints, but a hospital for sinners. Church, what does it mean to be on mission? It's for us to realize again that he's taken the broken, the desolate, us who are faithless. As Paul would remind us again that, that God takes, even when we are faithless, he is faithful. The last point on this betrothal or this love one I'm going to give, and I actually forgot to mention it at the first service, so it happened when I was at Grace Point as well, but this, I've always felt the second service was better, just as an FYI for all of you guys here. But all I have to say is this. When you pursue a bride, 
what do you do, right? So when I, when I pursued one man, I was in seminary at the time, I worked my butt off to go and, and get a ring, and that's kind of our modern-day version of a dowry, right? To say, I'm going to purchase for a bride. In Jesus' time as well, there was the purchase of a bride. And one of the things you realize in this passage is when Jesus is interacting with this woman, is he's betrothing her. He's like, I'm courting you. I'm pursuing you as my bride. And what we realize is this. What's the dowry? The dowry is himself. He'll lay his life down. The Bible says again that the church as the bride was bought with a precious price. As we approach in this Lent season toward the cross, toward Good Friday and the resurrection, what we realize is Jesus has purchased us as his bride, as faithless as we might be, and he's given his life for us. In response, church, if I can encourage you and charge you as we go forth, would you leave again asking yourself, what is it that you have been thirsting for? Do you realize again that the gospel says that Jesus is greater than all your pursuits that it might be? And that perhaps again, if the Lord has exposed an idol today, that you would simply say, Lord, let me just cast those, idol down, those idols down before you. Have you asked yourself the question that you would be known and loved? I say this not only in terms of God himself, but as you think, even amongst what it means to be a gospel community, do you realize again that you can be known and loved? Hopefully you're not bearing a pretense or a wall or a mask. Even when you come here to Seven Mile Road Church, that you're able to say, you know what? I can be known and loved all at the same time. And the final kind of exhortation really is this. When we think about this season of Lent, or as we approach Easter, which becomes a time in which more and more people out there in the world want to be able to say they're, they're receptive, you would ask yourself, you know, you might say, hey, no, not another charge to say go and share the gospel. Well, here's the thing about this woman, right? This divine encounter leaves this woman amazed, but she goes back to her town where she's known to be what? Not someone who's faithful. And she becomes an evangelist. And if you look in particular at John chapter 4, verse 39, notice what she does. She doesn't have a theological degree. She doesn't even try to defend the faith. All she does is simply says, I met a man who knew me. He saw me, and he loved me just as I am. And that becomes really the gospel message going forth. I think sometimes we're so sheepish as a, as a church to say, oh, how could God use me to bring someone to, to faith, to the gospel? And again, would you see in this passage that the response is actually that? If we have this divine appointment, this encounter, it's really something as simple as that. Jesus saw all my brokenness. Paul says, I'm chief of sinners. And he loved me still. The last couple of things I'll say is this. I've always used this as a litmus test to say, here was a woman who felt estranged from a lot of people, felt like she had to hide herself. And in the midst of this divine encounter, she was welcomed by Jesus. To kind of posit it out there for you as a church, would you consider if this woman were alive today and she walked through those doors, would you as a church welcome her as well? Would you say, I want to know you and yet also believe again that the gospel, the love of Jesus Christ would be for her as well? And I think it's a test for us as a church always to ask and say, would these people be welcomed in our church? And if we're not, shame on us, for we're not living in accord to, again, how God would design his church. The last thing is this. 
I grew up in a very similar situation where I always wanted to hide. I grew up in a broken family. I came to Christ when I was a junior high school, gave my life to Christ as a senior high school. But I will say this, where I often lived growing up as a child was simply saying, God, or people, I don't want you to see my brokenness. I don't want you to see how my family of origin has affected me and who I am today. There is a shame aspect. But I will say this, when I gave my life to Jesus and I surrendered it unto him, it was so freeing to be able to say, God, you know every facet about me. You know every thought, every word of my mind, and yet still you love me. Church, would you be freed in the gospel today as you go forth that you would be known and loved and to go and share the love of Jesus? Amen? Amen. Let's bow our heads in prayer as we come. Father,